welcome back to Deranged to Jure, the podcast that brings you to deranged lawyers covering the most deranged topics of the week. I'm Raven. I'm joined by my co-host. My name is Pisha. <laughs> I don't it know is. why I can't just introduce myself normally. I apologize, everyone. Someday I'll learn how to do it. I, you know what? I appreciate it. I, I'm for it. It's, it's totally fine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I've, I've missed you. I'm glad to be back. So. I'm so happy you're yeah. back. How was the beautiful land of Costa Rica? It was amazing. I uh, absolutely loved your uh, your AI episode. You and Jackson did a, a phenomenal job. So thank you anyway, very much. But but it is good to be back. I, I am happy to be back. We've got yeah. a uh, a lot of ground to cover here this month. Um, so with that being said, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question. It's a very pressing question. I've always wanted to ask you this, you know, in public, live. If you were to commit a crime. What crime would you commit? Me personally or you? Would oh, you... yeah, I guess. Actually, never mind. Um, okay, you know what? What let's crime start... would I? Let's start over. You know what? How about this? <laughs> you tell me. How about I pose this question for you, Raven? All right. Let's just say one day I were to go completely off my rockers and I were to commit a crime. What do you think that crime would be? Hmm, you. If you were. Okay. I'm just going to say, like, I just think arson oh yeah i'm feeling burn arson down yeah burn it down yep. all of it <laughs> yeah that sounds right yeah. i i would pick mayhem for you i could definitely see you driving a car through trash cans or in a convenience <laughs> store in the right you know mood. me too well <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know just in the right circumstances general mayhem. yeah general yep. mayhem. yeah that sounds about right Think about um, it about 20 times a day, probably. I know. Thank goodness <laughs> the intrusive thoughts don't win with us, huh? For the most part, yeah. Right. <laughs> the reason I'm asking you the, these questions, the reason we're talking about crimes in this country, um, A, is because, you know, we as lawyers deal with crimes and stuff like that, but but also kind of more generally in the context of, of history and racism in this country really has to do with the the penal system and the criminal justice system in this country. So we are going to cover some of the worst prison riots that have happened, but even more importantly, that have happened pretty much right next door. So Pisha, I didn't ever tell you this before, but I'm going to tell you this right now. Do you know where the very first deposition that I was a part of took place prison <laughs> yes it was <laughs> okay all right yeah okay prison i'm going with prison prison yeah yeah so so it was actually at the old main it was actually at the new mexico state penitentiary uh one of the first depositions that i took part of was uh of an inmate who was bringing a civil rights claim and uh, I was on, uh, we're going to say the wrong side of history on this one. But, um, but in any case, uh, we were at the New Mexico State Penitentiary, which is the place that we are going to be talking about a whole lot in the next three episodes uh, that have to deal with uh, the prison riot of 1980. 
uh, at the New Mexico State Penitentiary. So um, before we start with that, I do want to kind of give a whole over, overview of the criminal justice system and uh, mass incarceration in this country and why this is this topic is so important you know to me and to I mean to a whole lot of people but but why I think people need to pay a whole lot more attention than they actually are to this topic so you know we talk about mass incarceration what are we talking about in this country so there are right now I think this is as of 2023 between 1.2 million to 2 million inmates and that is out of 331 million people in this country. So we're talking about a whole lot of people who are incarcerated. Um, and this happened relatively recently. In 1925, there were only about 91,000 inmates in the United States. But with the changing policies and, and everything you know happening that I'm going to talk about, between 1970 and 1980, the prison population went from 196,000 to 315,000 and only began to rise exponentially from there. That's so, insane. And you're saying mm -hmm. as of now, there's as many as 2 million? Yeah, depending on who's doing the counting. So my goodness. And, and again, we're talking about this because it disproportionately affects people of color and this yes. being black history month, this is insane. Like a jump from what? 315,000 nationally to 2 million in less than 40 years. Exactly. Exactly. Insane. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, this hasn't gone unnoticed or unstudied, uh, especially with people, you know, talking about um, the history of uh, racism in this country. So in uh, VERA, which is a, an organization that I encourage people to contribute to, uh, they have a quote that says the year 1865 should be as notable to criminologists as is the year 1970. While it marked the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, it also triggered the nation's first prison boom, which when, excuse me, when state governments arrested and incarcerated increasing numbers of Black Americans. So obviously, you know, we know what happened with 1865 people were released from slavery and almost immediately placed into jails. And that trend continued and only got worse in 1970. And the reason I'm talking about 1970 is because we're talking about prison conditions that only got increasingly worse from there. So, for example, there was the Southern strategy that was uh, Richard Nixon put into place, which you know criminalized a whole lot more stuff that maybe shouldn't have been, that disproportionately affected Black people. Um, and then there was a war on crime that also did that. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we have enough airspace to talk about the reasons why this affects Black Americans more than it does anybody else. But it is a direct correlation. It just it goes directly back to slavery. I mean, you can you can trace it all the way back from 1865 to 1970, when which is the time that we're going to be talking about. So, 
in any case, you know, kind of, I guess, what, how would I say this? Indicative of this is the fact that the prison population today is 32% Black, 23% Hispanic, 10% multiracial, 2% Native American, and 1% Asian Pacific Islander. Um, to put that into context, there is a 14% Black population in the United States today. So just kind of putting numbers together, 32% incarcerated, 14% population-wise. Wow. So, yeah, so this disproportionately affects Black people for a number of reasons that, again, I don't think that we have the airspace to be able to talk about. Not in, in this, this episode, episode, but yeah, maybe later we'll be able to touch on it. No, and I think it's it's important, and you know we'll we'll touch on certain aspects of that. But but clearly, the criminal justice system has disproportionately affected Black people uh, due to inherent biases, uh, due to a number of different reasons of like criminalizing behavior and things that are direct reflections of the fact that you know the people who are uh, I guess direct um, of direct ancestry to to slaves you know have a certain background that leads to these things being criminalized um so while i don't want to say that it's necessarily intentional it's definitely something that we have to be aware of and have to be cognizant of in the future if we're going to ever get past um the racist policies that are in place today. So, and to put this in a greater perspective, so in the United States, like we talk about mass incarceration and what that means in America, um, there are 11.7 million people who are incarcerated worldwide. Uh, and so again, 1.2 to 2 million people being uh, incarcerated in the United States, that means about 25% of the overall global population who are incarcerated what? are in the United States. Okay. I mean, what? Mm -hmm. I just, there's so much to unpack. There's so much wrong with that. Like we're supposed to be this civilized, amazing, sophisticated, exceptional place, then why do we have so many criminals? And it's because we're criminalized, criminalizing behaviors that aren't necessarily illegal, but are, are just different. It's just right. oh, it's so frustrating. Well, and I mean, I, I think it, it has to, a lot to do with capitalism. I mean, you know, <laughs> I right. don't want to go too far into, you know, where, how, how deep we want to take this. But, well, you know, in the but, privatization of prisons and just how out of control mm -hmm. that's gotten in the United States. Yeah, that's that goes down a different road. But you're right. If there's a profit to prisons, why wouldn't you incarcerate as many people as possible? Absolutely. Right. And, you know, and I think criminalizing things that are lower income or, um, you know, that affect people in poverty has a direct benefit to people who are up at the top who um are making more money and and who don't have the kind of like perspective that um that people who suffer from you know the generational trauma so to speak um not to like use too many buzzwords here but 
Um, but I mean, but if you think about it, you know, the people who are dealing with, you know, having generation by generation by generation of, you know, just these profoundly traumatic things happening to them, you can only anticipate that they're going to react to certain things in a different way than people who have, you know, been born with a civil, excuse me, with a silver spoon in their mouth. So anyway, um, so that being said, um, <laughs> as you know, Pisha, uh, <laughs> I am a criminal defense lawyer. So I deal with the, I deal with prison conditions. I deal with mostly jail conditions. I will say not prison. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I think of when I, when I think about what I'm doing is, you know, how would I explain to an alien? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an alien, as you know. Yes. So I'm going to try and explain to you. Okay. Prison. <laughs> okay. Please do go. So, so yeah. So, so we take people who we think did bad things and we put them in a cage with other people who have also done bad things and we treat them like animals and worse for some arbitrary amount of time. And then we let them out and we expect that they're going to be better. And that's How's that, what, how's that supposed to fix them? <laughs> how is right. that supposed to rehabilitate anyone? Right. Uh, Th- that's what this alien asks. <laughs> well, the truth is that it doesn't. Um, and, and there's rel- there's a f- very few instances that I can think of that people have come out of prison better than when they came in or at least not worse. So, you know, the thing is that like, you know, I think that there's a political aspect to this of people want the people who have done bad things to be put away. So we don't have to think about them anymore. But the thing is that they still have rights. You've heard of the eighth amendment. Do you know that one? Is that the one about the military not being allowed to sleep in your house? <laughs> That's what I usually tell military guys when I'm out at bars. Like, right. sorry, Third Third Amendment. <laughs> you can't come home <laughs> with no. me. Um, okay, so no, that's the Third Amendment, not the Eighth Amendment. Right, exactly. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, remind me, even though I do know because I am a lawyer as well, and I had to take a lot of classes on this, um, what is the Eighth Amendment? Well, the Eighth Amendment is supposed to prohibit cruel and unusual punishment. Oh, yeah. Do you think that works? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are right. (laughs) I bet not. If I were a gambling woman, I'd put money. Yeah. Prisons are terrible places. So not only do they have poor health care, they provide poor hygiene, so some of the worst things that I've heard, and this is, you know, mostly, like I said, I, I deal with detention centers and jails, which are places where people go prior to being sentenced. I do deal with people being sentenced, and that's a whole other can of worms I'm not going to open. But like, for example, I've had people tell me that they have not been given access to showers for over a week at a time. So... And worse, and having to share bars of soap, those kinds of things. Um, The food conditions are terrible. Like trying to get a nutritious meal is awful. I've seen, you know, in a lot of cases, if not the majority of cases, people losing weight 
because of the food that they're being given in prison and not in a good way. You know, they're not getting right. This the is no Jenny Craig program. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is this is not great. This is not a recommended dietary plan. No, right. Like losing weight in a bad way and like and just in and getting worse. Like you don't get better when you're in jail. You get worse. Um, and so and that's not to mention, you know, the drugs that are involved and and all those things that, that happen in jail as well. Um, one of the biggest complaints that I get from people is that the uh, corrections officers are really kind of terrible to them. Um, I will say that I've had a lot of really good experiences with uh, staff in um, correction centers. Uh, I do think that there are a lot of people out there who want to do right by people. Um, I actually had this like really sweet Uber driver uh, who was a retired corrections officer who would tell me these stories. He was, he just, we had like an hour ride and he was telling me these stories about all of the people who came back to him and thanked him because he actually cared. And that's like such a sweet and awesome story. Um, but I also have, I had an old high school so-called friend uh, who is still part of my social media friends group or whatever. Um, who became a corrections officer and had posted a really vile thing about, you know, being the one who is keeping the evil from people. And just that kind of mentality really disheartens me because I think that the role of corrections officers, if, it, if we were to live in an ideal society would be much more about making sure that the people that you're in control of, I guess, unfortunately, um, are being cared are, for, are being cared for, right, and are being returned to society better than when they came in, right, right, like absolutely. What's the point of prison otherwise? Or corrections, like what yeah. is corrections if not to rehabilitate? That's my whole point. Right. So, so I mean, I, so the point you're making here is she, this person is so proud that she's doing her job, quote unquote, of holding evil, restraining them from society and keeping them away from us. That's not your job. Your job is to make sure those people in under your control, as you said, because that's really what it is. You're correcting them. They're your prisoners, right. your inmates. They're coming back better prepared for society and not likely to um, habitually offend. Exactly. Exactly right. Because the thing is that, I mean, like, I think this this also could open a whole can of worms. Like, we've talked about the whole Stanford project where when you put people in charge of other people, what ends up happening is that they take that power and they abuse it. And that's the unfortunate reality of the prison system in America. And that's why, you know, we're here talking today about one of the worst instances of that. So that being said, I think I've gone on my soapbox enough. Um, <laughs> my turn. <laughs> I think uh, it's your turn to go on your soapbox. So go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. No, thank you for kind of setting the stage for the prison conditions in America and, um, you know, more specifically during the seventies and eighties, there was that huge boom of incarceration and 
during that time, it was really popular for politicians to go after crime, what they called crime, of course, by increasing sentences. Um, but it wasn't popular to support overall prison reform, to fund prisons, to avoid overpopulation and proper care of the in inmates, etc. Also in the 70s, there was quite possibly the largest and most famous um, prison riot, the Attica, Attica prison riot in New York in September 1971. And we'll talk about that one more. But there was just this huge environment of unrest amongst the prison population throughout the United States. Um, so around 1971 in New Mexico, a certain warden who is definitely named Felix Rodriguez. Remember that name because <laughs> he's a dick. Um, yeah, that guy. This guy ruins everything by taking over as warden um, after a fairly progressive warden, J.E. Baker. J.E. Baker put a lot of stock into rehabilitating the, the prisoners and rehabilitative services, funding and investing in the prison system. So Frickin' Felix comes in and is like, um, well, I would like to not do that. And he slowed the process of prison reform, slowly eliminated educational, vocational, and other rehabilitative programs. And then he also reinstated really strict disciplinary authority to the CEO, uh, the CEOs, I'm sorry, to the corrections officers who abused it like you just said, with the Stanford prison experiment, which I can't wait until we go over it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, you know, we'll talk in detail about how this happens. But in this case, these, these correctional officers were built up to have more power than they were allowed to use on prisoners per the Eighth Amendment, you know? And, right. and they completely violated that, in my opinion. We'll talk more about their behavior. So... More towards the prison conditions in New Mexico, the penitentiary at New Mexico was just about, I think they said 45 miles outside of Santa Fe. It was built in 1956. The North Wing was cell blocks, which is what you normally think of, of in a prison, one or two inmates per cell block, and they're kind of separate. However, the South Wing was dormitories, which were more like barracks, just bunks and beds put into a huge room and all of the inmates shoved into it. So this was a design choice, of course, to save money. They could house mm -hmm. more people in less space. And um, technically, each dormitory could hold up to 50 inmates. This is more dangerous of a design choice, though, because there's no privacy. There's no segregation of first-time nonviolent offenders from the more hardened, violent, habitual offenders. Uh, so there's more room for violence within the inmates to erupt. So by the late 1970s, each dorm held as many as 100 inmates. That's double what they were built for. And many of the inmates didn't even have beds. They had to sleep on the floor. Oh. So that's just a taste of general population. But let's talk a little bit about segregation or what was 
less affectionately known as the whole. They were nine by six cells meant to accommodate one inmate, but sometimes as many as seven inmates were shoved into the same cell. Their toilet was one hole in the ground, and the only way it could flush was if the guards on the outside controlled it. And so they would strategically flush the toilet. In addition, there was only one faucet in these um, nine by six cells and the water would run, but it was controlled by the guards. And so they would shut it down for no reason. And during that time, people would go thirsty. In addition, there was no room to sleep or lay down if there were that many people in the whole, in the whole cells. Um, and they were left in total darkness, no light, complete pitch black. So it was not a great situation in terms of overcrowding. There were approximately 230 inmates to every one guard or correctional officer oh staff member. Yeah, that's insane. And by the late 1970s, politicians and policymakers increasingly abandoned the goal of rehabilitating prisoners and adopted a prison punishment for punishment's sake policy, in quotes. Mm. This is from Craig Haney of the University of California, Santa Cruz, an expert in correctional mental health. So during this time, as you've alluded to, these correctional officers were abusing the power they had and completely tormenting um, inmates. So that's where right. the conditions were in the 70s and 80s in terms of overcrowding and how everyone was just mashed together. And it's like, okay, now survive in a prison with all you criminals. Don't, don't do any more crime. <laughs> just don't. Right. Yeah, <laughs> maybe like, you'll learn your lesson. Yeah, learn your I lesson. And so that's kind of what the conditions were leading up to this riot in 1980. I'll let you get into um, more of the specific conditions. Right. Well, and I, I think, you know, to, to kind of put a period on what you were talking about, you know, we, we talked about the Eighth Amendment talking about cruel and unusual punishment. There's no actual definition of what that means. And it's been very strictly construed. And so all of these things that we've talked about have not been considered cruel and unusual. And so, you know, what? while I, I know <laughs> it's just nuts, it's so nuts, it's nuts every time I it's think nuts. about it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think we'll go into that kind of probably later when we talk about the more positive things, but at the time, especially in the 1970s and the 1980s, you had this big boom of, you know, these politicians who didn't know what to do with the so-called like crime boom of the, the time and era. You know, this is also the civil rights movement era. And so it, it is not a coincidence that those things happen side by side, right? So, you know, these conditions were happening um, and they were cruel and they were unusual, but they were not seen to be that way because I think of the racism that, you know, continued throughout that period. So, you know, we can't look at the 1960s, 1970s and forget about all of these things that were happening both on the streets with like the protesters, but also behind closed doors and with like this kind of shit that's happening that we're talking about right now. So 
Um, you talked a little bit about Old Main. Um, this building uh, was moved a couple different times, but by the time that we're talking about in the 1970s to the 1980s, which is the lead up to this prison riot, uh, it was outside of Santa Fe. Uh, it was set, um, there was an administrative like kind of cell. And then there was like you talked about uh, on one side, um, the dormitories and then on the other side, the psych ward, the hospital and these cell blocks as like was kind of typical for other prisons at the time. So um, there was the North wing uh, and then the South wing. Um, and then um, I'm going to skip forward. I, I don't know how to like transition out of that. I like, I totally didn't have a good transition there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I was on mute, but I was laughing at you. You're, you're totally cool. You're doing great. You start wherever you need to. <laughs> No, you're, okay. oh, let's see. So you had just gotten done talking about the admin building being in the middle cell. Maybe yeah. just say, you know, there was the North, you said there was the North wing, the South wing. Say. Right. There's a North. Yeah. So this, the, so the prison was set up like with it kind of in layers. So there were like the dormitories on the South side with, uh, you know, dorms, A, B, D, E, and F. And then uh, cell blocks one and two were on that side. The administrative uh, offices were in the middle and then to the north were uh, cell blocks three to six and the the hospital and the psych ward. So um, this was not a completely unusual way to handle things, but like you talked about with the dormitories, uh, that was not something that was typical for other prisons um, and led to some pretty awful conditions as well. So, uh, and the administrative offices were not completely secured. Um, I think we'll talk about this in a little bit, but one of the, I, I think the windows that uh, was supposed to separate the prisoners from uh, the corrections officers was supposed to be bulletproof, but the corrections officers knew that it was not. And so right. and that'll become important later. So, um, so some of the other things that, that, you know, that led up to, 1980. In 1976, there was, um, you know, this is on the wait in the wake of a 1971 prison strike and the Attica prison riot that, you know, like I said, we're going to talk about later. Um, so these prisoners are seeing that nothing is working, right? So they go through this prison strike again in 1976. And as a result of that, they were stripped naked and run nearly a hundred yards down the central corridor through a gauntlet of officials who beat them with ax handles. So this is in response to them protesting prison conditions. Um, this is what? called the night of the ax handles and several eyewitnesses corroborated this actually happening, including some of the officials themselves. Yes. And it's so absolutely insane. What? Where do yeah. you, first of all, where do you get so many axe handles? I don't know. I, the, <laughs> the I, axe I, handle store? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, know. I don't know where these, I don't know where these come from. But, but, but I'm just appalled by the use of said axe handles. Oh axe my handles. God. Right. right. I mean, these are corrections officers. This is 1976. And these people who are human beings, you know, needless to say, they're being beaten 
just simply for asking for human conditions, humane conditions inside of the, the jail cell, which includes, you know, having food that is edible, you know, and not being treated like fucking animals, which they were. So not only uh, were the corrections officers part of this, there's actually a chaplain who was nicknamed as Axe Handle, who was part of this as well. This this is all in the old main. A so, chaplain? A man of God? <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> I can't. I can't. I would never right? believe a person of spiritual nature harming someone else. No, ever. no, definitely not. They are blackmailed into being good by <laughs> the thought that they may go to heaven. That's right. And yet still do bad things. That's the thing. It's oh, like, my God. Anyway. Okay. Sorry, no, not, I'm getting well, far astray. No, it was but... my fault. I brought it up. <laughs> no, but it, but it's true. But yeah, so the chaplain was called Axe Handle, and uh, and that comes um, becomes relevant later. So anyway, also some of the other conditions that are important, you know, leading up to this riot, corrections officers uh, routinely engaged in the psychological torture of other inmates. They would withhold the inmates' letters and mail from their family, which is their only, you know, uh, escape into the outside world. So, you know, you have to think about, you know, what you're actually accomplishing by putting people into a cage. Um, you, you take them away from their family. You take them away from any support that they have. And all they've got is letters to and from their family in order to maintain any sense of reality. And these corrections officers are taking that away. Not only are they withholding them, they're reading them and then ripping them up and tearing them and, and, and putting them into the trash. Not only are they doing that, they're getting the names and information of their loved ones, their girlfriends and their wives. And they're telling these inmates that they are engaging in any, all kinds of disgusting, like sexual, you know, uh, intercourse and, and shit with, with, uh, their, um, these, these women that they love. So this is the kind of shit that they're pulling on inmates. And these are corrections officers who have very little training, which undoubtedly my dear friend of social media status <laughs> had very little training as well to be able to call people, who have families and who need to, you know, regain access to reality and live full, happy lives after they're in jail uh, or in prison, um, evil, yeah. you know, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, I, I can, I can go on and on about that, but, um, but the point is, you know, these are people who are 18 years old. Well, and yeah. we also have to remember that, like, people in prison aren't always violent offenders. They're not always murderers. They're not always rapists. They're usually petty criminals. They steal right. cars. They do drugs, you know? So it's just, it's, when you think about it in that way, it's like, it's a really disproportionate punishment and way to treat people who are guilty of very petty, trivial crimes, for the well, most and you, part. And I think that's actually like super important to bring up as well, because the way that, you know, these are economic crimes and these are crimes that are born of, you know, addiction or, you know, life circumstances, poverty, poverty. Exactly. Um, and not to say anything of like any of the horrific crimes that are happening 
by people who are, you know, very wealthy <clears throat> Trump. And um <laughs> Guys, <laughs> something something got caught in my throat there. That was weird. Fascist got stuck in, stuck in my throat. <laughs> I hate when that happens. <laughs> hate it. Ugh. Okay, go on. Anyway, so so yeah, so you're right, and so um, so actually, in Old Maine, uh, you know, this is this is known as one of like the super maxes, um, where you know I think people started talking about all of these very violent criminals. But they're being placed with all of the other criminals, um, you know, because speeding is a crime. I hate to say it, but like, but, you know, people who are in for like probation violations and you'll hear these horrible stories of people who have committed very petty offenses who are being placed in the same populations as people who have committed hor horrific murders. So anyway, um, so there, these COs are engaging in this horrible psychological warfare uh, against uh, the inmates, including the letter campaigns that I talked about. But kind of more importantly, like I think you alluded to this before, is the whole snitch system. So, you know, we in America uh, reward snitches. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I laughed because I was like, no, you don't. Snitches get stitches. I remember this, but I grew up in New Mexico after this prison riot. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, but but the thing is, and and um, is, I, I don't know that there's been a real uh, improvement here. But what would happen in this era was that the COs would know that that was like a death sentence for people to be labeled as snitches. And so what they would do is they would go out and spread rumors about other people who may or may not be snitches. So this included people who had legitimate claims against the prison. Um, this included people who had legitimate claims against other inmates, including people who had sexual assault, um, you know, allegations slash, you know, whatever claims. And, um, and so they would be placed into protective custody and otherwise, but it just caused this environment where the inmates would be pitted against each other. And that was very purposeful. Well, and, and I, think, I think, you know, I think like ahead. a, I think a really great example of this is, so, I mean, they called it the snitching system because they really had a step-by-step -step process in which they would get people to inform. They might not be willing informants. In fact, the cops would, I mean, the corrections officers would tell people that they were informants and then they would give them protection when they weren't informed. And then the corrections officers would offer inmates protection from the general population if they snitched. But people knew that if the inmates knew that if they snitched, that they it's a death sentence from general population. So they would refuse to snitch. These correction officers would then throw them into um, general population with hard timers or long timers as they were called and try to scare them into becoming informants. So they would say, hey, we'll protect you from all these people that all these hard times you're falling on 
if you inform. And so they would put people in situations where they were forced to inform and then yeah. they were forced to take the correctional officer's protection by being moved to cell block four, which we're going to talk about more, but like, yeah. it really wasn't just like people would come up and be like, Hey, we work with the cops willingly. They were finding people targeting them and then labeling them as informants so that they were in danger and then offering them protection from that danger they created. Yes, exactly. It's insane. Right. Like it was insane. Right. The kind of psychological torture. Oh, exactly. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, I think you'll probably get into this a little bit later about the hierarchy that's involved in prisons generally, but the COs were very aware of that hierarchy, you know, racially and otherwise. Um, and so, and they exploited that horribly. Um, and what led to even more unrest with that is that, you know, these, these prisons, as you kind of talked about before, with people sleeping on the floors were, incredibly overcrowded so they would pack these prisons despite the fact that you know they were only meant for under a thousand people they would they would pack them to like 1100 plus so for example on the night of the riot there were 1156 inmates in the prison that had bets for less than three 963 so you know it's <laughs> it's no wonder but um, you know, other conditions that happened. One of the biggest catalysts that I think um, created this unrest was on Thanksgiving before this riot happened, the inmates were served. I mean, and they had been served awful things like, um, you know, you expect that prison's going to be bad. I get that. But these inmates were given one hot meal every three days. And in between that, it was like crackers, you know, and just things that they were able to subsist on, but not live. And so you can just imagine that, you know, one hot meal in three days. And on Thanksgiving, they received um, turkey that all of the inmates labeled as being green and smelling funky. And even the, even the inmates who cut around that turkey got food poisoning as a result. So, so in addition to not like Dr. Seuss's green eggs and ham, this was <laughs> no. like green turkey make you sick. Yeah, exactly. And, so and you don't want to get sick. You do not want to get sick here because the toilets would be overflowing. And yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So for weeks at a time. So, you know, you didn't know when these toilets would flush, if they would flush. And to get sick in those kind of circumstances is just, I mean, unholy. It's, it's a, I, I don't know. And, and there's, there's rats, there's cockroaches all over the place. This is just extremely dirty. Um, they would only get one or two minutes, one or two minutes of access to water in a day. So, and it was intermittent. They wouldn't know when it was coming. So it wasn't like you could be like waiting for this water to come. It may come and you were off, you know, in wreck or something like that, which would be rare. Um, but you wouldn't know. And so you would, you wouldn't have access to water for that day. So the, these are the conditions that led to this. Um, one of the other things is, so, 
you know, talking about like the integration of, of um, violent offenders with kind of everybody else, like there are shoplifters, there are people who are on very minor violations. Um, there's also people who are, you know, severely mentally ill, um, who are placed, who, you know, there was a psych ward at one time, it was shut down. And so those people had to go somewhere um, and they were distributed between, you know, the segregated population and the general population. And, um, and a lot of them were mistaken as being snitches and we'll go into that later, but, um, but a lot of them were put into general population and that created some really terrible circumstances as well. So, well, and I heard, I heard they weren't like getting the medical treatment that they deserved. And I mean, I just think about people who have some conditions, maybe schizophrenia is a good example where you don't know mm -hmm. if there could be some kind of outburst of, uh, violence. If you're not separating these people or properly supervising the medical condition that would lead to those outbursts of violence, it's, they are a danger to themselves. They are a danger to the other inmates. Um, you know, I could see where the psych patients being integrated in without proper, uh, proper treatment would cause a lot of violence. And, and I think what weren't psych patients like 10% of the prison population then? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, because like the other, there's a lot of shit that was going on in the 1970s and 1980s, but they were shutting down institutions at that time too. Um, for better or worse. And, you know, in this case, I think for worse, because they were being transported into prisons. Right. So, I think I remember one inmate saying there were a lot of guys thrown in there who didn't belong in prison. They belonged in mental institutions. Which were being shut down. Exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. So, and, then, and then to have Mr. Felix Rodriguez come into this particular prison and slowly start cutting all of the rehabilitative programs, the mental health programs, the psych ward, and moving these psych patients into the general population, it was horribly reckless and insensitive. To Absolutely. say the least. <laughs> to say the least. Right. I mean, and, and yeah, and I, I think we're, we're going to talk about this throughout you know, this whole thing, but I place a lot of the blame in this whole thing happening on the politicians that, and on the populace. I mean, it, I think that, you know, they were playing to this ideal that people had at the time, that if we just displace people out of society and place them into these boxes, nobody would have to think about them. And that's not how life works. Those people continued to exist. And um, you know, for better or worse. And unfortunately, as a result of that, 33 people lost their lives. And I think you, you know, may have the beginning of, of how that started. So that's and I think right. that's the beginning of our end. So why don't you get into that? That's right. So we're going to end today's episode with a little teaser about how this 1980 prison riot at uh, the New Mexico Penitentiary took place. So this riot had been planned for months. The conditions were abysmal. The, the max security violent offenders had been moved into the dormitories, dorm E2 specifically, due to re renovations at the prison. So they were amongst general population. They were drinking some 
homebrewed prison. Who got the hooch? Who got the baby, hooch? Baby, baby. Baby, baby. Anyways, they got the hooch and they were drinking it. And though this riot was planned for months, it was literally executed on a whim that night because they were drinking the hooch and they were like, the conditions are right. Let's do it. Yeah. So for just one second, I just want yeah. to make sure that people understand that hooch is, is created <laughs> through <laughs> toilet water <laughs> and like and, and fermenting. We want you to know that this is not water. like some, some barrel aged whiskey. This is, Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. So they got the yeah. hooch. They um, got the hooch. baby, baby. Baby, baby. And circumstances were right. Not only had these max security violent offenders been moved to dorm E2, the riot grills that were outside the secondary gate that goes into the barracks, um, those, the, the secondary gate pushes in. It's very easy to open, like swing open, swing close. But the riot doors on the outside, the secondary layer of protection, they like pull out and slide. Those were really onerous to move manually. And so they were not being used for, I think, six months because they were being transferred to electric control. So the guards weren't bothering to close these riot doors behind them. In addition, they were not locking that first door that swings into the barracks. So while one guard would stand at that door, two more guards from the night shift, the incoming night shift around midnight would do a head count every single night. And the inmates knew this. They knew that one guard would stand watch at that door, that he wouldn't lock it. And that two of those guards would then walk up and down the aisles doing their head count with the flashlight because the night lights that were installed in the dorm also had not worked for over a month. So, yeah. So the plan was that the inmates were going to pretend to sleep and they were going to wait for these two guards. But there was one little wrench thrown in the plan. There was an unexpected third guard. So they were going to wait for these three guards to get all the way to the back of the dorms where they would then be swarmed by several of the inmates and taken hostage. Then an inmate at the grill, I keep calling it a a gate or a door, but it's, they identify it as a grill. Um, the inmate at the grill would then bust through it because it wasn't locked. Duh. Mm -hmm. And take that final guard standing watch outside as hostage. The guards, indeed, all of this happened. Um, the plan went off without a hitch besides that one extra guard being there Everything else went exactly to plan, and all of the hostage, all four of those guards were taken hostage. They were jumped, they were stripped naked, and they were beaten. This is just the beginning. And this is it how it started. This is how it starts. And then for the next 36 hours, chaos ensues and negotiations and hostage trading all kinds of stuff takes place. So I think you can understand why we had to cut this into multiple <laughs> episodes, but that's how this starts. It, yeah, it's a bad start and I hate to say it, but it gets so, so, so much worse. Oh, and 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think we this is probably the part where we need to give like every single trigger warning Absolutely. that you can possibly imagine. Um, yes. Because there are things that you just can't even imagine human beings doing to each other. Um, yeah. That yeah. we're going to so, go into so next please, time. Please listen, but put it on mute if you are sensitive to these things. Right. We need the listeners. We need so, the listeners uh, right now. So... <laughs> So, so please listen, but put it on mute. So don't listen, listen, but listen. Right. right. Yeah. Just, but, you know, press yeah. play, do something else, clean your garage. Yeah. Leave your phone <laughs> clean, running in clean the your car. Chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> clean your chainsaw. <laughs> oh my God. But the point is really next episode, we get really deep into the gritty details of the 1980 prison riot. And mm-hmm. then after that, we do a third part to the series where we are going to talk about some of the more positive aftermath effects of the prison riot. Right, right. right. Reform that's taken place. And, um, and then later in the month, we're going to draw it all together in a big, pretty bow. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, stay tuned. That's it for this week. We'll get into those details next week remember to like subscribe and follow us on all the socials of course and yeah until also um give us an email you know shoot us an email at deranged.dejure yeah deranged.dejure at gmail.com correct and until next time stay out of law school and the infirmaries goodbye Remember to like and subscribe to Deranged DeJure on your favorite podcast platform and follow at deranged.dejure on all the major social media. Contact us by email at deranged.dejure at gmail.com. This has been a Raven Kink production.